a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in Torah? What do you read there? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan saw him, was moved with pity, went to him, bandaged his wounds, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Now which of these three do you think was his neighbor? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Brandon Scott says that you need to remember that the people with whom Jesus grew up were by and large illiterate. That as many as 97 to 98 percent of rural people could not read nor write. In a culture where most of the people cannot read nor write, it's important to be a very good listener. And the Jewish people had a culture of being wonderful storytellers. Luke tells us this story, that one day a lawyer stood up for the express purpose of testing Jesus. Now this word testing here is a really nasty word in Greek. He means no goodwill at all. Now when you hear the word lawyer in the Bible, do not think lawyer as today where our lawyers go to law school to learn about Oklahoma laws and federal laws. But instead, in Jesus' time, a lawyer was one who was well-versed in the Torah, one who had studied very carefully those first five scrolls. As old Tevye said, if I were a rich man, I'd go to the synagogue every day and ask questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes. They constantly looked at Torah and asked questions about it. That's the kind of person who's now questioning Jesus. Now Jesus says, well, you know the Torah. What is your reading of it? Now Dr. Fred Craddock says the fact that this attorney, lawyer, gives the same answer that Jesus gives on an occasion in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel when someone asks him what are the two greatest commandments shows that Virtually everybody among observant Jews knew which commandments were considered the greatest. Jesus wasn't the one that first pointed them out. In fact, the Ten Commandments had now swollen to almost 400. It would have been quite natural for people to say, uh, but which are the most important ones? And they'd all decided that there was one verse in Deuteronomy and one in Leviticus that were greater than all the others. In fact, Jesus said, 
all of Torah and all of the prophets are contained in these two verses. The first in Deuteronomy we call the Shema. When one goes to Israel, given key to a hotel room, you go up and stick the key into the lock and you see right there on the doorpost a tiny little metal tube. It's been screwed into the wall. If you were to remove it, you would find that inside that little tube there's a tiny little piece of paper, a scroll, if you would. And if you opened it, it would say, Hear, O Israel, the Eye Asher Eye is our Elohim. We must have no other El but Him. We must love Him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. The I will be who I will be is our only God. But in Leviticus, as you would that others would do to you, do you even so to them, or love your neighbor as you love yourself. But to justify himself, now to save face, the lawyer goes on, well, who is my neighbor? And we know that there were discussions, because we have the literature of the period that shows there were discussions, about how far Jews ought to go in interacting with other groups. People in the Middle East have long memories. I think our politicians do not always understand sufficiently how Sunnis and Shiites feel about each other. They're still setting off bombs against each other because they are debating who should have succeeded Muhammad the prophet 1,400 years ago. So the Jews certainly remember who the Samaritans are. Their little country is divided into three parts, Galilee up at the top, Samaria in the middle, Judea at the south. And those Samaritans in the middle are the mixed-blooded folks who've lived there for the past 750 years. After the Assyrians came down and obliterated the ten northern tribes, took the few survivors that were there away and brought in their own to fill in the territory. They took over the watering holes. They took over the green fields. They took over the farms. And they've been there 750 years by the time Jesus lived. So when Jesus tells a story to help this fellow understand the word neighbor, Dr. Brandon Scott says all the buddy would have settled down to listen. Hey, we love a good story. Once upon a time, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a winding road 17 miles down from Jerusalem, 2,700 feet above sea level to Jericho, which sits right on the banks of the Jordan River as it's about to empty into the Dead Sea, 800 feet below sea level, 3,500 feet, one descends, and 17 miles to Jericho. They knew this road well. So a man going down would most likely be a Jew that's in Judea. A Jew is going down the road when suddenly lesties fall on him. The historian Josephus says the lesties were bands of highwaymen who waited on desolate places, stretches of road, so they could fall on a traveler, particularly one all by himself, strip him, take everything they could. Think of modern-day pirates off Somali. They listen carefully. When they hear there's a man who's been stripped, beaten, left to die, Dr. Brandon Scott says, Aha, this is a hero story. This is a hero story. They knew this story. Well, maybe not the details, but they know that somebody doesn't help and somebody does. The ones who don't help in this case are a priest 
a descendant of Moses, Aaron, Miriam, and a Levite who assisted the priest in the temple in Jerusalem. We know that numbers of them lived in Jericho. It was not so expensive, and if they had three or four days off, they could make that trek down the road, spend some time in the home, go back up to the temple to work again. So the priest fails. He passes by on the other side. The Levite fails. He passes by on the other side. So who do they think the hero's going to be? One of them. A shepherd came by. One who grew olives came by. A farmer came by. No, Jesus said, a Samaritan came by. Dr. Brandon Scott said, probably half or more would walk away and say, it never happened. It didn't happen that a Samaritan stopped to help a Jew. But if you take Jesus seriously... You need to listen to the story. So there are four things here. Number one, the lawyer. The lawyer just wants a little bit more, a little bit more. Right now on Broadway, Kathy Venable could tell you more about this. There's a revival of the old play Harvey. Many of us remember when James Stewart played the role, lead roles, made into a movie, James Stewart, playing the role of this fellow who's very confused, he imagines there's a rabbit six feet three inches tall that goes with him everywhere. He talks to this rabbit all the time. Finally, his family commits him to a psychiatric hospital. But the other day I was reading in the Wall Street Journal an interview with the man who's playing the psychiatrist at the hospital. His name is Charles Kimbrough. He's 76 years old in real life. This reviewer said he's doing a terrific job as the head of this hospital grew up in Chicago. This actor went to University of Indiana, was graduated, went to Yale School of Drama after that. And he said, then I wanted to try. I wanted to try to make it in New York City. You know, when I got there, I just hoped that maybe I'd get a part. I'd be on stage five minutes, just five minutes on a Broadway stage. But you know how it is. And this is what he said. When you pray your prayers at night and things get better, you always raise the demand. You always want more. Always. Number two, you have the priest, you have the Levites. Dr. Fred Craddock in his commentary says, don't demonize these two. These are God's people who do God's work at the temple in Jerusalem. They have a law that if this man is dead and they touch a corpse to whom they are not related, family member, they're ritually unclean. They cannot go, cannot go back to work. These lesties may be hiding in the rocks. This fellow may be just there to draw someone else and they can fall on him as well. Something's happened to them. I mean, their own laws say if there's someone in need, you're supposed to go and try to help. They move on. There's a new movie that's come out of Sweden called Easy Money. <clears throat> Joe Morgenstern, who reviews movies for the Wall Street Journal, wrote about this one. The lead character 
is brilliant, but he seems to have no sense of morals whatsoever. He's come from a blue-collar family. Everybody wants him to go to college. He's trying hard, doing well, supporting himself in a number of ways. He writes term papers for the other students for a fee. He drives a taxi at night, a taxi that belongs to the mob. He doesn't seem mind doing business with them at all. He's able to get enough good clothes. He can show up in important places. And a young heiress named Sophie is falling for him. And then Joe Morgenstern writes, when you see this movie, you're going to want to whisper, Sophie, not him, not him. This is a brain disconnected from his heart. Isn't that a good line? Here is a brain disconnected from his heart. Sometimes our brain tells us to do one thing. Our heart tells us to do more. We decide to listen to the brain. Number three, the Samaritan. This Samaritan's out of his element. He's in Judea. His country is far the north, yet he's the one that stops, binds up this man's wounds, uses olive oil, alcohol to cleanse, puts him on his own mount, takes him on down the road to Jericho, spends the rest of that day and night. The next morning, reaches in his pocket, takes out two days' wages, two denarii, and says, look after him. I'll be back. If you've spent more, I will repay you. Yeah, that one. I was a history major in undergraduate school. I know a fair amount about World War II. You may remember in June 1940, the French and the Russians decided to sign an armistice with Hitler and the Third Reich. Hitler made all kinds of promises. To Stalin, he said, we will not bother you. You're of no concern to us. We will not harm Russia. Stalin signed. To the French, the Germans were more difficult. They said, we're going to divide your country. Part of it will be occupied by us. The other part will be unoccupied. You'll be absolutely free. If all of your military will lay down their arms, they will immediately be freed into the unoccupied part of France. The Vichy signed. The French army laid down, laid down their weapons. Now, one of the young men in the French army was named Jean Elion. He was an artist who'd come to this country to seek his fortune. He was an abstract painter. Uh, went home to France when he saw the difficulties that the Third Reich was visiting on all of Western Europe, signed up, enlisted in the French army. So when they were told, lay down your weapons, the Germans are going to let you go freely into the unoccupied territory, he too laid down his weapon, and the Germans surrounded and captured one and a half million French soldiers. And they made slaves of them. Because Adolf Hitler had every intention of invading Russia, he did invade Russia, and he moved these one and a half million French soldiers to the Polish-Russian border to do all the 
the slave work that he needed to have done. They were literally made slaves. They didn't know if they'd be there a week or a month or a year. It turned out five years, of course, before the war was over. All the soldiers given a little piece of bread every night, a little bit of gruel, maybe, and then marched out before daylight the next morning to rebuild bombed-out bridges and railroads. Finally, it was all over, and Jean Elion wrote a book about it. This artist, who would not be an abstract painter ever again, he would paint pictures of loaves of bread and fruit, something to eat, people who had plenty. But in his book, he said, we Frenchmen learned that we had to become a community or die. We had to become brothers or die. And so at night, when finally we were back inside the camps, we would sit in small groups in the dark and talk. In the winter, we almost froze to death. In the summertime, it was so hot, unbearably hot. If our boots wore out, we had to work barefoot. Our clothes were tattered, filthy. So many got sick, thousands died. But we became brothers. We would sit in these small groups and say, what did you do before you enlisted? I was a farmer. Tell me about farming. I don't know anything about farming. Please. And this one would teach. The next night, they would be so weary, so tired. They would sit in these little groups before they went off to bed and say, what did you do before the war? I was a merchant. I sold cheese. Really? How many cheeses did you sell? What were they? Tell us about them. And they taught and taught. Jean Helion wrote about these brothers. He said, All barriers that might once have made one different from the other were gradually melted away. We became brothers. Number four, which one of these three do you think was neighbor to the man in the ditch? See, Jesus changes the way the question is phrased. Can there be anyone who is not your neighbor? Anyone. Fred Craddock writes that he was a college freshman, 1947, two years after the war ended. He'd grown up in a small little community. He went to a very small college. And he was amazed when one day the rear admiral of the Navy, who was the number one ranking chaplain in the United States military, came to speak at his little college. He said after his evening presentation, the floor was open for questions. Now you need to remember, of course, that Navy chaplains are also chaplains to the Marine Corps. When Marv Lawson was here with us, having spent 25 years as a Naval chaplain, he said that one year he would be chaplain on board ship with the Navy, the next year, U.S. Marine Corps. This particular chaplain was with the Marines when they landed on the beaches of Normandy. And so the questions began. What was it really like on the beaches that day? Now, if you've seen uh, Saving Private Ryan, you get some picture of what Steven Spielberg uh, believed was happening on the beaches that day. How many young lives cut to shreds by enemy fire at the top of the hills. How many hours it took them to finally breach the tops of the hills and start moving inland into France on their way to Berlin to try to end the war. 
Now, many of these young college students had brothers, older brothers, who had been in service, and they had seen their brother's dog tags. They knew that along with name, rank, and serial number was Protestant, Catholic, Jew. And one of the students asked this chaplain, Sir, on the beach that day, did you have to stop and ask, are you Protestant, Catholic, or Jew? And he said, Son, when you're a chaplain, you have only one question. Can I help you? 